At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Before you drift off into one of our meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to share with you one of the new opportunities for our listeners at The Mindful Movement. This is Sarah Raymond, and I'm so excited to announce the expansion of our coaching services to include two of my good friends and excellent coaches, Nikki Dyer and Laura Cannon. Both Nikki and Laura provide their own unique skill sets, allowing us to meet the needs of our growing audience. If you want to learn more, just follow the coaching link in the show notes. As always, we are grateful for your support and look forward to working with you. Welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for tuning in today for another episode. I got to talk to Bill Schindler today. Bill's the author of probably my current favorite book on food. Learning about food has been quite a journey over the years, and I've tried a lot of different styles of eating, trying to figure out which one seems to serve me and my family best. And a turning point was definitely created when I discovered Bill's book, Eat Like a Human, Nourishing Foods and Ancient Ways of Cooking to Revolutionize Your Health. This book has had a big impact on me and my family. Um, Bill dives into nutrition from a perspective of an archaeologist and really asks different questions. And those different questions provide really a different framework leading to different answers and a different way to integrate a relationship with you and your food and it's a relationship that I've really grown to appreciate and I'm really grateful for what I've learned from uh, following Bill's work so I'm really excited to share this message with the audience today with the help of his family and a very supportive team Bill also runs the modern Stone Age kitchen a really cool restaurant in Chestertown Maryland where they take ancient practices that have been developed over thousands of years that humans have used to get the most out of their diet and they apply it in a modern restaurant environment. It's a really fun place and when you go you can get an education too. There's tons of educational content through their website and they host in-person classes which I've attended and they're fantastic. So thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, I'm here with Dr. Bill Schindler. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. It is truly my pleasure to be here. It's been a, a while. I was introduced to you probably about a year ago, and I've been um, really looking forward to talking to you on the podcast and letting the audience kind of come along for the ride. I feel like being introduced to you and your work has been one of those like paradigm shifting hmm. pivots in, in my own journey. Uh, I used to be like super fat and unhealthy and never exercise. I went through all these different like directions of trying to improve my health. And anytime anyone that does that, nutrition always has to surface at some point as something to navigate through. And it's been the information I've got from 
my introduction to you has been one of those things where it's shifted the paradigm in which I view nutrition and its relationship to my physiology. And in turn, I've been able to help others with it. You wrote this book for those listening. I highly recommend eat like a human nourishing foods and ancient ways of cooking to revolutionize your health. Bill, what I like about this is you propose kind of a different question about food than what most people are thinking about. And I'd love you to elaborate on it, where it's common to think maybe, what should I eat? Like, what's good for me? And you kind of propose a different question of, um, over time, our ancestors probably asked more, something along the lines, I hope I'm not butchering it, is like- No, you're doing great. It's <laughs> like, how can I eat this food? Mm-hmm. Instead of like, what should I eat? How can I eat? And that's been um, transformational. And j- just to put it in perspective, I I listened to you on a podcast. I don't remember which it was. I got your book. I read it. I went on your website, booked one of your sourdough making classes. I couldn't wait for the class. I started making sourdough. I fell on my face many times in that process. And then eventually... I became someone that could bake delicious sourdough and it transformed the experience of a meal because I was one that was scared of bread. Like I know Mm -hmm. many people are um, that go on like a health journey. I was scared of it. Like there was literally fear in my subconscious around, I will get sick if I eat this. And the way a slice or two of crusty buttered bread transforms an experience of a meal is like going from this is a utilitarian process where I'm feeding myself for nourishment to I feel like a king. Hmm. And it's it's talk about upgrading your general quality of life. It's amazing how something so simple and it's kind of, um, you know, hardwired in us somehow. Yep could provide so much. That was kind of a run on. So I want to hand it off to you. I want to just say thank you for for introducing that side of food to me. And I, I would love to hear, you know, a little bit more how you even got into that. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you for that introduction. And it's so good to see you again. Um, and and for everybody listening, I'm, I'm, I really, truly appreciate the opportunity to share some of how I view the world with with all of you and hope that that can add, help add to the way you view the world. You know, there's so many things, as you were talking, I'm thinking about all these things that I, I, I want to say to piggyback on them, and, and we could be here for four or five hours. <laughs> it, was, it was such a great introduction. Let me start uh, by, by saying this, and I think this is very um, uh, pointed towards how you, how you started that introduction. I spoke once, I I was a college professor for about 20 years, and I spoke once about my teaching philosophy. And one of the things that I said about my teaching philosophy, which is how I approach teaching today, but even podcasts and and all this stuff that does uh, do with food now, is I wanted to teach um, uh, in a way that I learned best. You know, I wanted to offer to my students the same kind of experience that the best professors, the best teachers, the best mentors that I had through my life um, impacted me. And what I realized was what the most powerful teachers, mentors, professors, whatever uh, do is that they share with you the way that they view the world, not to um, replace how you 
see it, but to augment how you see it. And I realized that, you know, when I want to learn how to, 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 to cut a piece of wood or carve a piece of wood, I want to look at that piece of wood and see what the best wood carver sees when they look at a piece of wood or the same thing of a potter when they look at a piece of clay or the best butchers in the world when they look at a carcass hanging in front of them or whatever it happens to be. I want to add that to my sort of repertoire of how I, I view the world. And, and when you started that introduction, it just made me remember that that it is that paradigm, how you view the world, how you view your place in that world, how you view your place in your family, in, at the kitchen table, in the kitchen, in the environment, all of it is so profoundly impacted uh, or it impacts so profoundly what you do, the decisions that you make, how you feed yourself, how you nourish your family. And um, so, Will, I thank, thank you again for helping me or giving me the opportunity to help people at least view the world a little bit the way I do. One thing I always also like to start off by saying is I, there is nobody on the planet that has all the answers, especially when it comes to food, diet, and nutrition, and health, and I'm, I certainly don't either, but I do think that uh, my varied background, which we'll talk about in a minute, has at least given me the opportunity to ask some of the right questions, because I think that's definitely where we need to start. So the the, the quick version of, of my story is I, I've spent my almost entire life, I'll be 50 next month, almost my entire life. Uh, with this incredibly unhealthy relationship with food, uh, everything from being incredibly overweight as a kid to um, severe metabolic disease as an early, when I was just started to become an adult. And even though during the middle of that, I was a division one athlete wrestling for Ohio State and my weight fluctuated back and forth. And no matter, I, I had, you know, my coaches and uh, my parents and even, you know, Ohio State, they hired some of the best nutritionists to try to tell us how to eat. I am now at almost 50 years old, healthier than I've been my entire life. And uh, I owe that to completely transforming not only the way that I look at food and my relationship with it, but also the question that I have been asking almost my whole life. So to, to, to sort of lay that foundation, um, one of the stories I, I usually tell, and it's not, a, it's not a pretty one, but if we're really going to have real, real impact on, on people, um, I think we have to tell the truth and tell these, tell these even embarrassing stories. Um, I remember as a kid, every time that I would pass anything reflective, whether it was a mirror or I was in the mall and you had the glass windows and you could see yourself, no matter what it was, I remember looking, I would always look. I'd always feel bad about myself. I'd always suck in my gut for a minute and then look again five seconds later at the next one. And, and it, this was a very, and, and I was always just thinking to myself, you know, what, what, just some, somebody tell me what I need to eat. If somebody tells me what I need to eat, I'll lose this weight. And my entire life will change. And that, that was the wrong thing to say for a lot of different reasons, but um, that's my, my young child brain was, was thinking this. And then the, you know, this really came to a head one day. I remember sitting, I had just, gotten out of the shower or I was getting ready to get into the shower. I, I was young. I was probably, I don't know, probably 13, 14 years old. And I was naked, right? Cause I was about to get into the shower and I was sitting on a toilet, going to the bathroom and I looked down. And obviously that's one of the worst things you can do is look down because your whole body dysmorphia, especially when you're looking down. But I remember looking down, grabbing the rolls of fat with both my hands and just literally praying that somebody could tell me what to eat to change my life. Um, and what I realized was that there's so many things wrong about everything I just <laughs> said, but the one I want to spend time talking about today is that question asking what I should be eating. What I've realized is that even though that's an important question, 
it's a question that no other animal in the world has to ask, right? We hire nutritionists and doctors and all these other people to tell us how to eat. Um, meanwhile, we are the most unhealthy species on the planet because of how we feed ourselves. And every other animal is running around, living these incredible lives, eating the diets that they're designed to eat and don't have to ask that question. So what is different about humans? Like, Why can't we just do the same thing that other animals do. Well, it gets really, really complicated. I don't know how much you'd want to dive into it, but let's just start by saying this. For three and a half million years, our ancestors have been creating technologies to overcome our own physical limitations and do something to the food before it even touches our lips. It started with stone tools, then fire, then hunting technology, then fermentation, and all sorts of these very basic but transformative technologies that allows us to access increasingly diverse and nutrient-dense resources from our environment, and most importantly, transform them into their safest and most nourishing forms outside of our body before we touches our lips. And it is because of that approach to food that uh, we were able to increase our nutritional intake and support massive body and brain growth. And now here we are in this really weird paradox where modern day homo sapiens, huge energy and nutritionally expensive brains, huge nutritionally expensive bodies, with a digestive tract that cannot meet our nutritional needs on its own. It would require these extra technologies. So what we should be eating, good question. We, I mean, and, and for a lot of different reasons, but what I have chosen to focus on is answering that question, how we should be eating. What can we do or what should we do to our raw materials, to our, to our food, to transform it into, our, into its safest and most nourishing form possible for our bodies, before it even touches our lips. That is the approach that our ancestors had for millions of years. That is the approach that we need to focus on in order to eat the most nourishing diet possible today. And the cool thing is, if when we do it right, it also helps meet or exceed our other expectations of food, right? Things like flavor and texture and aroma, certainly an appearance, but also our expectations of you know ethical approaches to food and sustainable approaches to food. Everything literally falls into place when we focus on how we get these amazing raw ingredients and transform them. And you made a great point. You know, bread is, is a perfect example. Grocery store, if, if people ask me all the time, always ask me the same like four or five questions. And one of them is always, should we be eating bread or should bread or can bread be a part of a healthy human diet? And that question is unanswerable unless we dive into the how, because if you're talking about a, a, a loaf of Wonder Bread from the grocery store, absolutely not. That has no business being in a healthy diet whatsoever. It does more harm than good. But if you're talking about a wild, long fermented loaf of real traditional sourdough bread, yeah, I, I believe we can incorporate that into our diet in certain ways and still be incredibly healthy humans. And I'm very grateful uh that I've also discovered that, um, as I mentioned, it's it's become not just a hobby, but it's a vehicle for connection. Um, you know, we talk a lot about mindfulness here. Mm-hmm. We're called the mindful movement. Mindfulness can be looked at in many ways. Uh, maybe a simple way is just kind of paying attention, like paying attention as you navigate your human experience. And when I try to take that approach so that it uh, translates to all these relationships that you touched on earlier, not just relationship with yourself and your environment, but your family, how you show up to do the things for the things in your life that are important to you. But, you know, it, it makes, it draws me in to it, it like draws 
on the desire to connect more deeply in all these different aspects of my life. So anything that takes up the minutes in my day on a regular basis, whether it's the way I talk to my my son or it's the way I treat myself in the gym or my mm -hmm. clients or how I'm spending time with my wife in the bedroom, whatever it is, like when I look at food, it's such a staple. Like we can't avoid food. Mm -hmm. um, we have to do it. We have to eat it. And just like cultivating this deeper connection with it has been profound. And there's something about like, like I know some people will say the, the vegetable you eat that you grew from a seed, it just tastes different than the vegetable that you buy at the local store, regardless of like if it's a health food store or some, you know, big box supermarket. There's something about spending the time watching the fermentation, mm -hmm. getting your like hands in it, experiencing like even my sourdough star where I pull it out and I smell it. <laughs> it's like, you know, you had this nerve that was like, I think the first cranial nerve <laughs> that was developed in a womb, this, this connection from our nose to our brain. And it's like, you're involved, mm -hmm. you're connected to the process. I remember when the pandemic hit, my wife and I felt out of, out of fear and love, I guess, uh, compelled to build connection to our food. We got a chicken coop and just the act of like uh, building relationship with these chickens, which were surprisingly um, pet-like, like way more than I would have expected. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you're building this relationship where like, I'm giving you, I'm giving you nourishment and you're exchanging, you're giving me nourishment. And it's different. It's different when you're in the kitchen, it's in the pan and you're cracking an egg that you've worked hard to, you know, provide. You've gotten up, even though it's raining, you're going out to the coop to feed them. Like the egg is different. And I think that there's an energetic imprint on some level. This might sound woo-woo, but there's something about what that nutrition does for you mm -hmm. when you're a part of that process. And the bread is like, it's on my team. It's not a battle anymore. It's not like um, a fight, an internal conflict of like, what's the damage I'm doing for this bread? It's mm -hmm. more like this bread, this bread is an extension of me because of the connection that I've cultivated you know, with my nutrition through this one tool, this one thing called bread. Absolutely. So, gosh, you so you bring up so many great points. The same thing you say. You're talking. I'm thinking about all these things. One of the things to say. Um, so, when I give presentations on stage at, at conferences, um, I, I have a series of slides that lay out um, all of our. I'm sorry, not all the major milestone dietary changes over the past three and a half million years. And a lot of it has to do with technology and all these other sorts of things. But a, a running theme on the bottom of all these is our level of connection as a, as a group to our food. And one thing you see for the entirety of that time of, of three and a half million years up until you know, 12 to 15,000 years ago, the agricultural revolution is that we're becoming increasingly uh, connected to our food, where it comes from, how it's prepared. And that goes for everybody in a given community, whether it's a, a, a family, a clan, a tribe, whatever. And then when we hit the agricultural revolution, a lot of things change. When we learn about it in history class in eighth grade, we learn about this agriculture revolution as this amazing thing, because some people end up becoming farmers and, you know, create a surplus, freeing up 
other members of the society do all these other wonderful things, become writers and, and poets and politicians and all this. And while that is great, what's not mentioned is that all the people that aren't involved with growing their food become distanced for the first time ever from where it's coming from, right? And that's, even though there's some positives with it, that's definitely a negative. So at that point, I say, we, we, you know, we go from hunter-gatherers to food producers. Some members of our society are producing a massive amount of food and other members are doing something completely different. And then the next big change happens at, um, at about uh, in, in the 1700s of the Industrial Revolution, where we go from food producers to food consumers. And most of society is separated from not only growing their food, but anything that has to do with food. And we're just shop, most of us are just shopping for our food. You know, we have these different levels of, of disconnect. And even though there are some wonderful byproducts of those changes, right, societal ones, there's also a ton of negative ones. And where we are now is we're at this state where we have to hire people to tell us where food is coming from, you know, uh, what we should be eating, how much of it, when to stop eating, when to start eating, you know, all start getting out calculators and figure out macro <laughs> and micronutrients. And it shouldn't be that way. We should. So one of the things that I also like to say, and I, I think this is very important, you know, I come at this from a, from an archaeological perspective. I'm very focused on on evolutionary driving forces for many things. And one of the things, if we really just sit back and think about it, it just makes sense. There are three parts of our life that are truly sensual. Sensual in terms of every one of our senses are firing when we're engaged in whatever that happens to be. And it all has to do with uh, our ability to reproduce viable offspring that reproduce viable offspring so our species can survive and we don't become extinct. So those three things are reproduction, nourishment, and safety. Right when we're engaged in all of those things, I'm just just think for safety, for example, just just think about you know two o'clock in the morning, you're dead asleep, and all of a sudden something falls and you jump up and you literally your senses are in, in super heightened like superpower strength. You can hear and see and do things like you never. You're trying to protect yourself and your family when you're engaged in the act of reproduction. All of your senses are firing right, and when you're in the act of nourishing yourself all of your senses are firing. I mean, eating is a truly sensual act. You, you eat and experience that act of eating through smell and through sight and even through sound. I mean, just think about crunching on a chip and through taste, all of that, all of it, right? Feel all of it. So when you do these things, it's, it's not a coincidence that when you do these three things right, they feel really, really good. And when you do them wrong, they feel really, really bad. You know, nourishing ourself is not shouldn't be this weird act of God where we have to you know spend all this money and all this time. We should be able to trust our senses. We are evolution you know, hardwired through evolutionary forces to be able to do that. We should be able to tell ourselves, okay, this is when I should start eating. This is when I should stop eating. This is how much I should eat. You know, all of those sorts of things. And I'm convinced that if we are in tune with our bodies and we're faced with real nourishing food we can make those decisions. The pro there's two problems though. One, the three problems. One is we're rarely faced with truly nourishing food. Two, we have, and, and all well-meaning, we have, um, uh, have taught our kids from infancy to stop relying on their own senses and listening to somebody or something else. I mean, you know, we put kids in a high chair, these, you know, star very hungry 
organisms screaming for food. We go to feed them. And what do they do? They spit it back out at us, right? And we have to play these games with airplanes and trains <laughs> and, get, and force it and give them the cream spinach and open up the jar of beechnut baby food and keep giving it to them and teaching them that uh, they should be listening to us and not themselves. No other animal does this. I mean, have you ever seen another starving animal get food from its parent and spit it back out. I mean, heck, baby birds are getting fed worms covered with dirt and they're gobbling it up. And our kids are spitting out food and we continue to force this food down their throats. Something is wrong, right? So um, the other third thing, so we should be hardwired to be able to make those decisions about what we should be eating. The part that's different about humans, like I mentioned earlier, is the how, and that's the special part, right? The part of how we can take this raw material that truly we biologically have no business eating because our digestive tract is not designed for it. But how can we use our human ingenuity, transform it into its safest and most nourishing form possible and nourish ourselves and our families with it? And that's the power of what happens in the kitchen, right? So the, you want that connection? Connect in the kitchen. Learn to make your food from scratch. Now, I know for some people like, okay, you just lost me. I'm done. Like, I don't have time to get into the kitchen. But, you know, like you spoke, the you know, what you did with those eggs and, 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 and your, your journey with sourdough bread. Imagine if even for a brief moment, even for a short week or month or whatever, you learned, you, know, you had that profound experience with all the major parts of the food that you and your family eat all the time, right? Not only do you have that incredible connection, but you have educated yourself about that food, that food that is either going to harm or nourish your family, you know more about that food than any other through any other source. I don't care if you went to culinary school. I don't care if you listen to every podcast on the planet, write every cookbook in the world, listen to every you know social media influencer. There is nothing to replace what you can learn yourself in your own kitchen. So there is you know, a couple of very cool things about learning to cook from scratch. And again, even if it's just you know, uh, you know, you do it once and you say, "Great, that was wonderful," and nobody really ate it, and, and go ahead and buy. The, this is what's very cool about it. Number one, there is no food, and this is, took me a long time to realize, there is no food that you and your family can be nourished from that you can't make in your own kitchen. And if you learn how to do it right, you'll make it better than any place you could ever buy it. And that goes for bread or cheese or cured meats or fermented vegetables or whatever it is. You can do it. You, you can do it in your house better. And you get, in, in, in addition to making it more nourishing and more delicious, you also get that added benefit of knowing everything about that process and your family gets to experience it as well. Um, the, the, the biggest thing, you know, I've spent a lot of time in college. I actually spent 10 years as an undergraduate. I spent eight years getting, seven years getting my PhD. I spent a lot of time in libraries and on archaeological sites and all this research. My biggest education was the education that I gave myself in my own kitchen. And it doesn't have to be this crazy elaborate meal. I and mean, one, one other story I usually tell is about 10, now, shoot, that was about 13, 14 years ago. Um, I decided I was going to make a Thanksgiving dinner completely from scratch, like 100%, no two ingredients put together by anybody else. And I did it. And it took me months. And I learned to make the butter and the cheeses that we offered and the breads and, you know, all we did everything or everything 100% from scratch. And I'm telling you, I served this meal with this smile on my face and this sense of pride. I literally patted myself on the back, not figuratively, I literally patted myself on the back. It was great. Meal was over. The next day I'm thinking about it. I'm like, that was wonderful. 
what did I really do? Like, who did I nourish? I nourished my family for a meal. Like, did I impact their life that much? No. When I realized that if I was implementing those strategies on the everyday things, not the big glorious Thanksgiving meal that I could pat myself on the back for, but the regular bread that my kids ate every single day or the, the butter that they were eating or whatever it was, the stuff that we ate every single day, if I could learn to make those things as nourishing as they can be over days and weeks and months and years, I was going to make an a, a incredible impact on, on our family's health. And that's exactly what I started focusing on. And now I got to say, you've made what appears to be, um, and what I could speak from personal experience, an incredible impact on many other families. In, in fact, I got to I gotta mention this. I mean, I went to the sourdough class at your facility, your um, establishment. It's called uh, Modern Stone Age Kitchen. Mm -hmm. And... In, uh, and I was so excited. So I heard you on a podcast, I remember. And I and then when I looked up and learned about you, I was like, oh, he's in Maryland. Like, what are the chances? I'm in Maryland. And Maryland's not that big of a state. So I was like, oh, <laughs> what an opportunity. So I was so excited. It was like a place to go to meet someone that I've been learning from. And um, when you walk in that place, man, you've really created something special. Like, you and your family should be really proud of what you've done. I mean, it, I'm sure you, you've heard it and I'm sure you can see it, but like when, when I'm there and I see the way your family is engaged and everybody's in it together and your staff as if there's real purpose and intention, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's something that a lot of people don't have in their life. And to watch it be expressed in this way that's like spreading love through not just nourishment, but the education of self-nourishment. It's like, it radiates out of that place. And it's in this quaint town, it's perfect. I mean, hmm. the town is cute, it's great. Um, and it's such a special place. Uh, I went for the sourdough class, it was, it was amazing. I went again recently with Sarah, we spent the night in Chestertown and, um, and we took a, uh, it was like a meetup group where mm -hmm. there was happened to be somebody local from my uh, part of town that was hosting something there with you. And there were different speakers, um, all with like a different kind of niche. And it was a great opportunity to, to learn and get together with people that have some similar interests. And then you, I know you host a lot of educational things there. So I, I got to share this with you. And my daughter asked me to ask you a question about one of her recent ferment uh potential disasters but um <laughs> okay so i had your your book on the uh, i read your book a while ago and it's become like my go-to book to hand out to new clients i work in a gym environment so uh nutrition is usually discussed in the first um session that we have before we kind of jump into the movement stuff and it's just a great place to start because it provides context i feel mm -hmm. like what you do for food is kind of how i approach movement where i really focus on the context and then, um, and kind of build a scaffolding from there. But um, my, it was, the book was on the coffee table. My daughter starts picking up, this is fairly recently. She gets obsessed instantly. Within like the day, I have carrots fermenting in the kitchen. <laughs> That's awesome. Which, um, and she goes online on herself. So she's 19, she just started working and she, 
insisted on paying this for herself. She bought the intensive workshop at your at your facility to learn, you know, all your major uh, categories of food preparation. Um, you know, these natural mm-hmm. processing, whether it's fermentation or uh, well, a lot of them are fermentation based. Seem just and she did it on her own, and it's you know. It's well, it's perfectly priced for what it is. It's a great value, I think. Also, it's not something you would expect a 19-year-old to be investing in itself. Hmm. And I was really proud of her and I'm excited for her. And she's so excited. And she like like what I went through with the bread, she couldn't wait. So she started, you know, putting vegetables. She just went to the store, got carrots, chopping up, and then she's fermenting it. She did um, so it, it like spreads, like what you're doing is special and there's like love and intention the intention of love is like built into it and it radiates and it spreads and it's contagious and it's important and i think we it's something that we need more of in the world and i applaud you for you know taking whatever is inside you which is interesting that it came from an archaeology standpoint mm-hmm. which is different than most nutritional information we get and it provides definitely a different context but um it's, it's just great. But she did ask me to ask you. Okay. Um, so she did the carrots. It's got like white fuzzy things, <laughs> fuzzy things on top. This is her, her first batch. And she was like, can I eat? Are these safe? And I, uh, I did not know the answer. It looked mm. questionable. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, can is that a problem? Should she start over? <laughs> I, well, I might need a little more information, but let me let me okay. say a couple of things about it. So first off, for anybody listening, if you want to connect with the kind of cooking we're talking about here and your food, a great, incredibly safe, powerful place to start is through fermenting vegetables. Um, it is so kind of the, the, the vegetable fermenting guru around the world is a guy named Sandor Katz, who about 20 years ago really brought back um, fermenting, home fermenting, and, and empowered a lot of people to start fermenting it in their house. And he says, and he's done a lot of research all over the world, tons, and about uh, lacto-fermented vegetables and fermentation in general. He said, there's never been a documented case in the world of somebody getting sick and going to the hospital from fermented vegetables. This is not, I mean, there's things you can do with fermenting meat that can get incredibly dangerous, but fermenting vegetables is a great sort of, um, you know, gateway into, into this world. And you will not, you will learn a ton. You'll make amazing things. It's very, it's very difficult to mess up and almost impossible to mess up to the point where you're going to make somebody sick. So uh, with that said, uh, when you ferment vegetables, uh, ferment, fermenting vegetables is an anaerobic process. So it happens in the absence of oxygen, everything happening under that waterline is very, very, very safe. And as the bacteria are eating the carbohydrates in the food that you're fermenting. It's producing lots of things, but one of the things it's producing is lactic acid. And as that lactic acid builds, the pH drops, it becomes more acidic. And as that happens, that environment becomes very hostile to bad things, bad pathogens. It's great for good bacteria, helps kill off the bad stuff. So here in, um, you know, in Maryland, we have to reach a pH of below 4.2, um, and then we can we can sell this, which is very easy to reach in, in, in about a week's worth of time of, of fermenting. So anything under the water is almost always very, very safe, and everything up in the air is just the air. The place where you can have a little bit of a problem is where the two different environments come together, which is right at the surface line of, of that liquid. 
Um, if you get a white powdery stuff on the top, that looks more like a powder. That's almost always something called calm yeast, K-A-H-M, which is harmless, completely harmless. You can skim it off. You can stir it in. You can not worry about it at all. Most people just kind of skim it off. If it starts to get fuzzy, we're getting into a whole different genre of, okay. of, of things that are happening. And maybe I said, maybe it's not fuzzy. It's very, it's, it's not tall. Um, it's a really thin layer. It's more like a film. Yeah, it's more yeah. like a film. It's probably calm yeast, and you can Google calm yeast and see pictures of it online okay. very easily. But even if it does, I'm sorry, you said that's K A H M. K A H M. Even if it does, if if things grow that do get a little fuzzy, it doesn't mean things are bad, right? You start getting into into black and blue molds, you might want to think about getting rid of it. But things that are white or whatever, again, that that surface area is a it's an ecotone between two different environments. You um you can just skim it off. In fact, some people, hardcore people that believe in the power of fermentation, will literally stir some of this stuff on the top in knowing that it's so safe inside, it kind of kills it off. I think that's a little silly. But uh skimming off is is fine. The only time you really start to have a big problem is if your vegetables are sticking up through that surface of the liquid. And if something's attacking it there, it can kind of go down and make it softer, off-flavored, okay. but it's probably fine. So uh, touching on that, I mean, a lot of what's in your book and your message is really talking about taking these foods and mostly plants, because I think the plants are what's naturally carrying more things that could harm us because they have all these like defense molecules and such. Um, like the idea, the idea of these processing techniques is essentially to be able to eat these where, as I think as you describe it, they offer their nutrition up easier without with a smaller price to pay. Um, and at the core of the, or not the core, but I guess the standout processing technique is this idea of fermentation. Can you touch on for those that aren't familiar of why uh, for you know why it's desirable to ferment these plant foods like what's happening during the fermentation that makes it where that has gone from matter to like food <laughs> that's a good I, lo I love what you said all of that yeah so first off um, one thing that my publisher was asking me about when they read the original draft of my book is there's not a chapter on fermentation what do you think about ferment? I said, no, there's not because fermentation, because I, I had originally thought about putting a chapter about fermentation. And I said, no, fermentation runs literally throughout every one of these chapters. Um, the only one that it doesn't stand out in is, is the meat one and animals. And that's because we just didn't dive into it. We could have, I have never found an example of an indigenous or traditional food way that doesn't have fermentation at its core. And even if you're eating a, a, a modern Western diet, um, and some of this is all new to you, and you think, oh, well, fermentation doesn't impact my life. Because, well, it does. I mean, it, it is at the core of some of the most of the highest quality of our most favorite foods. The highest quality coffee in the world uh, requires fermentation as a part of the process. The highest quality chocolate in the world requires fermentation as a part of the process. All traditional real cheeses require fermentation as a part of the process. It's you ferment dairy to make yogurt, you ferment dairy to make um, the traditional um, fermented uh, butters. Uh, you have uh, real breads are fermented. I mean, fermentation permeates every part of our lives. 
the difference between the kind of traditional fermentation that, that I'm advocating here and the kind of fermentation that are, is in the modern industrial food system is that we embrace all the, the wonderful aspects of fermentation and let it do its thing for us, as opposed to taking a piece of it for, in a modern sense and, and destroying the rest of it. I'll give you a few examples. So one of the things, so fermentation, a great way to think about it is, and it's not very appetizing, but it's controlled rot. Our food all begins as something organic and it will break down. We can, as humans, control things about that breakdown process. So we can control temperature or humidity or the kind of food the bacteria is eating or a whole bunch of moisture content, all these different things, and can control that fermentation process to transform raw ingredients into something that's safer and more nourishing for us. The byproduct of it is that fermentation also transforms uh, our food and produces flavors and aromas and textures and visual appearance that we really enjoy in a lot of our foods. Now, if we can, in any case, take advantage of all that at the same time, we end up with this wonderful food that tastes amazing, that's pleasing to us, it's satiating, and it's safe, and it's nourishing. Or we can just use fermentation for some of the you know, more, uh, what do we call it, um, uh, flavor or whatever pieces and then destroy the rest of it. And he, here, here's a wonderful example. So I was out um, trying to nail down, I was in, in California doing some research and trying to nail down my sauerkraut. I was, I really just wanted to nail my sauerkraut down. And I was visiting um, this wonderful sauerkraut and pickle maker out in, in California. And he was telling me, about, and he uses traditional, you know, lact, lactic fermentation um, for process for his sauerkraut and his, and his and his cucumbers for his pickles, and he was telling me about this big industry, this big plant that makes all the pickles for Burger King and McDonald's and probably Wendy's and whatever, but a lot of the fast food joints. And he says, "Do you know? Believe it or not, they actually ferment their pickles. Like you're you're out of your mind because most of us, when we think about First of all, the word pickle means to ferment, even though we've sort of bastardized it now. And most of us, when we think about pickling something, are thinking about vinegar and hot packing a jar with you know sugar and things in, in a bowl jar under either at least high temperature, but sometimes high temperature and high pressure. That is what we consider pickling today. And most of us, a pickle means we've taken a cucumber, put it in with sugar and vinegar and some spices, heated it up, put it in a hot pack and in a jar, and that's a pickle. That's not a pickle. That's a modern knockoff version of what real fermentation can produce. So there's real, no, just to be clear, so there's no fermentation in that. It's more like a brine of some sort. There's no fermentation in no, that. Okay. And, what, and what you're doing when you can something, and, and this isn't to, to knock on canning, but believe me, there's wonderful things about canning, connecting, but canning is not a very old traditional process. Canning has not been around for very long. Canning is replacing some of what fermentation can offer. Um, and one of the things that you do when you can typically is you make it more acidic, drop that pH, not by allowing it to ferment and build up the lactic acid, but you do it by adding something like vinegar or citric acid or lactic acid to it artificially. That's why you add vinegar. And you add that vinegar, drop that pH into that safe zone, just like I talked about earlier, and then you have your finished product. The problem is it hasn't gone through the fermentation process, which inherently makes so many of our foods not only taste better, but are safer and more nourishing. So here we are up at this, this pickle factory and I'm talking about this other pickle factory. And he says, yeah, they actually ferment their pickles because they know the right flavor comes from actual fermentation. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're telling me that the pickles in McDonald's are real? And he's like, yeah, but after they pickle them and get the flavor, then they can them under high temperature and high pressure and kill all the kill beneficial all. parts of, of it all. 
Um, so, you know, that, that's the modern version of it. The, the real version of it that you can do in your kitchen with everything is you're taking this food that in some cases you could make the argument we have no business eating is inherently either somewhat slightly or very toxic to us. And just as importantly, you know, I, I call it, uh, when I use, I call it, I don't have a better name for it, but I call it the can of soup effect. This idea that, you know, we pick up a can of soup or anything with a label and we look at the label and it says it has this much carbohydrates, this much protein, this much fat, this much zinc, this much whatever it is. And we have this, you know, mental image in our head that if you swallow that entire the contents of whatever that container is, that your body is getting nourished with everything on that label. And that's not true, right? Um, it just means you put it in your mouth. The only thing you can guarantee is that it's going to come out the other end. You have to be healthy. The, and those nutrients have to be in the right state for your body to access all of them. And plants, even though they do have wonderful things in them, those, the, those foods often, those nutrients often require some type of work to make them accessible to our bodies, or else we're just going to take a, a ride on our digestive tract and pass right through us. Fermentation is one of those things that can help unlock a lot of those nutrients and make them accessible to our bodies or, or more bioavailable. So it's, is it literally like the bacteria and yeast are eating and like metabolizing the parts of the plant that would otherwise either harm us or block us from getting the nutrition? And then like the end products of that metabolism is something that's different. Like if let's use sourdough, for example, sure. um, you know, I stopped eating bread because I had enough nutritionists tell me take some time off gluten. Mm. And um, it seemed like reasonable enough to try. And I went a while without having any bread. And then the sourdough, like when I eat sourdough, I have no negative problem. I mean, I could eat too much. And then I can get fat because I'm just eating too much because it's it's delicious. And it's hard for me to eat it without putting an absurd amount of butter on it because um, I look it's like a vehicle for butter. Mm. And, you know, in my house, butter is life. But the like, why does it not affect me? Like, did the microbes during the for, and so uh, during the lacto fermentation? Is it just, is it literally like eating gluten and turning it into something different and like yeah. degrading it? Actually, let's use, bread is a great example. So let, let's use that as, as sort of the basis for, for explaining this. First off, let me just say, do you know, and I might've said it in the class, but in Denmark, they have a term for, two, it's called tooth butter is, is, is the word. So the idea is you have to put enough butter on that bread that when you bite into it, it leave, the, your teeth leave marks <laughs> on, the, on the bites of the butter. So you, you need to put that much butter on the bread. Um, so- Let's take, again, sourdough bread as, as an example for what happens during the fermentation. Now, the, the, the chemical reactions that take place during fermentation are incredibly complex and different for different types of fermentations. But I think we can um, explain it with bread and uh, get the point across. First off, what are we trying to do when we're eating bread? We're doing something that's really, 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 really weird, right? The plants are... For doing plants are not put on this planet to feed us. Plants are, are on this planet trying to survive and not become extinct, just like every other organism on this planet. They put a lot of effort and energy into protecting those parts of themselves that 
are the most important to do that, to reproduce viable offspring. Grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes are the babies of the plants, right? And they aren't, they are, they are protected through chemical defenses that the plants produce. So here we, are, you know, the, the plant has produced these seeds, grains, a grain of wheat, for example, for, the, for this conversation, and the outside especially, but that entire grain is protected and, and lays dormant because of all these anti-nutrients and phytates and lectins and all these, all these things that allow it to stay safe and it's protecting itself. It's that grain was not created for humans to eat it. That grain was created to make another wheat plant. Now, when he, and here we are trying to take the baby of that wheat plant and get some kind of nutrition from it in a, in a safe way. And the way that we do it in a modern sense is we grow these plants, the wheat, the wheat uh, berries come out, we harvest it, everything stays dry. We you know, keep it dry and then we grind it into flour and then we, we mix it up with bread and yeast and everything else and, and make it a loaf of Wonder Bread. A loaf of Wonder Bread is made in an hour start to finish from flour to not only a finished loaf of bread, but a finished loaf of bread that's cooled down and put into a plastic bag, start to finish an hour. Those grains never had an opportunity to detoxify. Those grains never had an opportunity to start to break down in any way and, and get prepared for our digestive tracts. So most people who have problems with gluten cannot eat a loaf of wonder or a slice of wonder bread. They would have all kinds of all kinds of issues. And even if you don't think you're having issues with it, there's pro there's a very good chance that there's something happening that's not ideal in your digestive tract that you'll find out about, you know, later. hours, months, or whatever later on. Now let's take a loaf of sourdough bread co compared to say that loaf of wonder bread. Sourdough bread is a completely different thing. We take those grains and we we not only ferment them with yeast to create carbon dioxide to make the bread rise, but we ferment them with bacteria, wild bacteria that's in the air, it's on the our arms, it's on the tabletops, it's on the flour. We use the wild bacteria at the same time to um, create a different type of fermentation. That's not just making the bread rise, but it's doing several things. One of the things that the fermentation is doing is helping to detoxify and get rid of, or at least mitigate the issues that are caused by the anti-nutrients, the phytase, the lectins, the other problems that are there on that grain trying to, um, trying to keep it safe. In addition, the bacteria are pre-digesting those grains. So our bodies have to work less hard to get the nutrients from them because some of that work has already been done by literally trillions of bacteria before it even touches my lips. Another added benefit of the bacterial fermentation is, well, the fermentation in general, but that long fermentation you get with sourdough is that the food for the bacteria are uh, the carbohydrates in the, you know, in, in the flour. So a finished loaf of sourdough bread is different in a lot of different ways. And I'm gonna, I'll throw some numbers out in just a minute. One way it's different is it just looks and smells and tastes different anyhow. I mean, plus, unless you know a really good baker, the only way you can ensure that you're getting real sourdough is to make it yourself. So you've probably, if you're eating sourdough, you probably have a very close link to that bread at some level. You might've even made it with your own hands. In addition to that, that sourdough bread, the glycemic index of that sourdough bread is completely different than just a loaf of yeasted bread. So anybody who has an issue with their blood sugar, diabetes, prediabetes is probably looking at the glycemic index, which is a chart that rates, an index that rates 
your blood sugar response to different types of foods. If it's 100, it's what your blood sugar does if you have pure glucose. Um, if it's zero, there's no change whatsoever. So things like sweets and brownies and cookies are usually very high up towards 100 and very difficult to digest. And um, you know, foods and, and, and things that don't spike your blood sugar are, are towards the bottom, towards zero. Anything in, I think it's above 71 or, or something in, in the 70s, I forget the exact number, is in the high range. So if you have an issue with diabetes, prediabetes, whatever, you usually stay away from the high glycemic index foods, anything you know in that range. It doesn't matter if it's completely white Wonder Bread. It doesn't matter if it's Petridge Farm, you know, the most whole grain, wheat berry, whatever thing. Any of those breads, if it's a yeasted bread, falls into the high range, regardless of, of what the ingredients are. If you take those ingredients, same ingredients, don't change anything except for put it through a full, long, wild sourdough fermentation process, it drops to below 55 on the glycemic scale. That's in the low range, and your body treats it more like a vegetable than it does a loaf of bread like what you're that's used to. That's wild. And that's because the bacteria are literally eating the carbohydrate for you. So, that's so you one, that's, there's several complex things happening, but okay. one of the reasons is because that um, number one, that the bacteria are also eating, you know, the sugars that are in there and um, that fermentation is a very long fermentation. You don't have that real quick yeast one trying to get it out. Quite often the fermentation is at minimum a whole bunch of hours, if not several days. The other cool thing that I'm just learning about now, and I can't give exact numbers because I don't know the exact numbers, is that if you take that loaf of sourdough, people might've heard that if you take, if you cook potatoes and then cool them down, and then either heat them back up or whatever, you create something called resistant starch in there. So your body, some of the starches in there becomes inaccessible to your bodies because of that cooling and, and, and reheating process. Um, and in addition to not being available as strict carbohydrates to your body, it also acts as a prebiotic to help fuel the probiotics in your gut. Um, supposedly, if you take sourdough bread and then freeze it, um, and then later on, you know, thaw it out and make toast or whatever out of it. You're also creating even more resistance starch. So again, I don't know the numbers, but I think you can even drop that glycemic index um, on the sourdough bread um, through that process. In my house, there's no way sourdough <laughs> bread's going into the freezer. I mean, I've been making one to two loaves a week since I read your book, basically. And um, it's very rare that any part of the loaf sees the next day. That means you're making a good loaf of bread. <laughs> oh, I, you know, and I uh, talk about like, I, um, and I, you know, going to your class was great. It was so informational. And I also saw some of the parameters that you have to work within are potentially like limiting um, because you have to make a lot of loaves of bread mm -hmm. and you could kind of explore and get, you could spoil yourself in a way when you only have to make one, like you could push limits that I think, at least for my taste can improve the loaf. That would be really hard to do if you had to make a lot of them. Yeah. Like, yeah. like pushing hydration levels. Actually, this is probably like frowned upon in the sourdough world, but I've stopped measuring. And at first my family thought I was crazy, but which also is built, more connection. Like sure. I am paying more attention 
and I'm really getting a feel of consistency of my initial dough to the point where um, I'm just making enough where it fills the bowl to a certain you know ballpark range, but I'm really looking for the consistency to dictate like how hydrated it is. And I'm pushing the envelope. I'm, I'm like on the eternal search for what's the highest hydration I could get away with. And I mm. go off the visual look. And what I notice is the higher I go, the more I like the end product, but it's, it's more challenging to work with. Well, you know, uh, that, that's coffee. really cool. You say that I can't do that here because we're trying to crank out, right. crank out's the wrong word. We're trying to produce bread <laughs> that looks the same on Thursday and Friday and Saturday. You for, have to you make know, money to some degree. You have to stay in but, business. <laughs> you know, let me say two really quick things. I'm so glad we're talking so much about bread. One is, you know, this is really, I think, uh, important to this conversation because you're so focused on connection. One of the other really cool things about sourdough bread and 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 real traditional foods especially fermented foods in general is you know foods all food that we eat should have that sense of terroir associated with it you know we we, we for those of you who know that term you probably know it through the wine world the idea that um, the the growing conditions that are unique to a certain area impact the final qualities of a given wine. You know, red wine from Argentina should have different qualities from red wine from Bordeaux and red wine from California and, and, and like because of the different conditions in different areas. And we celebrate that with wine and we should, but we should celebrate it with all of our foods. The problem with the modern industrial food system is because it's it's focused on uniformity. And you know you can get a McDonald's hamburger in 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 Asia and a McDonald's hamburger in California, and they should look and taste exactly the same. And and, and that should be something we're proud of. The cool thing about real traditional foods, especially when fermentation plays a role, especially when wild fermentation plays a role, and we're harnessing and using the wild bacteria and yeasts that are in our own area, is that those that that sense of terroir comes terroir comes through with the food. You can make the same loaf of bread in San Francisco and Paris and here on the Eastern shore of Maryland, the same exact way. And they will have slightly different qualities and they should. My bread here from Chestertown that we create, even if you use the same exact recipe should taste a little bit different than in your own home, no matter where you're baking it. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But what's really cool about sourdough is they did a, a study several years ago where they were looking to see if the um, if they could look at the bacteria profile in a loaf of bread and trace it back to the bakery it came from, and they sh and they should be able to. And they did the study. Say, oh yeah, actually, yeah, we can trace it back to the actual bakery because that sense of terroir was so strong there in, in the traditional food. But what they found was not only could they trace it back to the bakery, they could trace it back to the actual baker. And there's a symbiotic relationship between the baker and the bread. The bacteria that are that that are on their hands as they're kneading the bread, and this is something that I know some people are listening, like, "Oh my gosh, that's disgusting." It's not. It's beautiful. Yeah. That's connected. Some other human being was was actually touching your food, and there's a part of them at some level, right? Not in the cannibalistic way, but there's a part <laughs> of them that came through with that food. You can trace the loaf of bread that you're eating back to an individual person, and I think that's an absolutely beautiful thing. That this, is wild. Isn't that crazy? And the second thing I wanted to mention very quickly is, I know we spent a lot of time here talking about bread, but the benefits of the sourdough process can come through with lots of other things besides just bread. 
you know, you have that sourdough mother that you that you have uh, that you have, you know, you keep going, and you can use it to make just about any baked good on the planet. You know, you can make everything from waffles to pancakes to to our croissants are 100% wild, long fermented sourdough. You know, all of those things can be made with it. So, if you're somebody that's listening to this, thinking, you know what, maybe I want to put dip my foot into it, but you're a little bit scared of making bread, you shouldn't be. It's a lot easier than you think. But even if you don't, don't hesitate. Make the sourdough mother. There's there's a, a information on on our website on on how to make the sourdough mother from scratch if you want, make the sourdough mother and then just start making waffles with it. You know, just start to learn that process. You don't have to dedicate an entire Saturday to, to stumbling through making sourdough bread. If you don't want to, you can actually start getting the benefits of that immediately by making something else with it. Great. And we'll put the link for the listeners uh, to, to get that information from the website so you could learn a little bit. There's, um, I have three questions. Um, one is that word terrar, can you spell that? t-e-r-r-o-i-r okay i don't think i've ever heard that um you mentioned earlier i gotta backtrack a little bit because you you alluded to a word that's very near and dear to my heart um and i'll I'll tell you i guess why in a moment how i've built connection with that but you mentioned coffee and i don't think i've really heard of coffee being fermented so just a little uh backstory to inform you I've always liked coffee, but a while back I was trying to save money. So I tried to uh, buy coffee like direct from uh, a website where you could like buy a lot at a time. I was just trying to get my cost down. Mm -hmm. And I found this coffee that looked amazing. And it was like, I didn't understand why it was so inexpensive. Like it was too good to be true. I was like, this is great. I hit the jackpot. So I bought it and I got like 20 pounds of coffee delivered and I opened the box and it was green. It was raw. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was like, that's why it's expensive. And I'm like literally about to throw it out. And then I'm like, wait a second, can I roast this? Like, is that something I can do? Cause I didn't, I never met anybody that did that. I didn't know how coffee roasting happened. So I go online, you know, University of YouTube learn how to roast coffee. I've roasted coffee like every other week since, and it's probably been seven years, eight years. That's awesome. And it's the best coffee. Like we drink the best coffee of any coffee I've ever had. And I kind of feel that way with the bread too. I feel like I'm eating the best bread I've ever had these days that I'm making. But um, is, is that a separate thing? Like is talk about fermented coffee. What am I the fermentation. What am I missing? The fermentation happens right after the the beans are harvested. It's oh, in the so drying it, so process. So all coffee is fermented. No, oh, all no. It, you can and listen, we're almost right at the limit of my knowledge of this. Okay. <laughs> so gonna, but uh, when it's harvested, it during its drying process, it can either uh, ferment and dry slowly and develop all sorts of fruity characteristics that are wonderful in coffee. They're, they're intense flavors, but they, but they develop, or they can be forced dried. Um, none of that develops and it doesn't go through the fermentation process. Mm. Um, and again, I don't want to say too much more because I'd be lying if I, if I okay, said I'm going to call my coffee supplier and see if I can learn more from them about, um, what I'm getting at. That's great. And but, for, for those listening, by the way, the website I use is sweetmarias.com. Um, no affiliation here. It's just where I stumbled upon one day years ago. And you could get coffee from all over the world and they ship it to you for pretty reasonable. It's amazing. 
Um, there was another question I had, which um, might be the most important question of the interview. Do you think it's important to name your sourdough starter? <laughs> Do you know we haven't named our sourdough starter? Oh, but what we have done that is super important. Um, I think it's important in your home. It's definitely important here. We um, we make now, it, 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 just for, again, people listening that maybe haven't done this yet, at home, I would usually keep about 500 grams of sourdough mother going at any given time. Um, I, and then I'd take that and I'd make bread with some and then refresh some. And I'd end up with, you know, I'd have a little bit left over and, and, and you'd get a couple different, you know, containers in the fridge at any given time with <laughs> different mothers in it. And it would get a little confusing. But here we're making, you know, 30,000 grams of mother a day in some cases. And we have buckets of mother that are in different states of fermenting and all this. And it would get confusing. Now we label everything here anyhow, but we, but it, it would get confusing. And what we ended up doing is, and this isn't my idea, this is one of our team members' idea. Once we've taken mother and refresh it, the stuff that's left over, we started calling the grandmother. You know, it's, okay. it's still useful, but it's kind of <laughs> tired. <laughs> gotcha. So we put that aside. So that does actually help um, if you start doing that because grandmother is perfect for making waffles and those sorts of things. And mother, like the most freshest version of your mother, we should be using to, to, to leaven bread and, and do those sorts of things. Do you have a name for your mother? Slappy. Uh, actually, there's even a song that's been created. <clears throat> I've never really sung on the podcast. This would be really embarrassing. You, <laughs> you did tell a fairly humbling, like uh, vulnerable, embarrassing story early in this podcast. So I'll, I'll exchange. I will, um... <clears throat> I'm waiting. Slappy the sour dough starter. So okay. that's the song that someone hears when if you're anywhere in my house when Slappy's getting uh, his meal. I'm sure I'm going to regret the last 30 seconds of my life uh, doing that, but uh, yeah. it was well done. So we, thank you. Um, so we have a, a name. And it's a deal. And you know what? Like we talk about connection and there's something a, like a togetherness that food brings, like, you know, all of our holiday, there's always, it's always around like feast being together. And there's something about that. Like that silliness is, it's really another layer of connection where the family's in on it. Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're all in on it. Granted, I'm the one making it. They're not helping really, but I'm the, I'm a, I'm the cooker of the family but it like draws them in too it's like a thing to discuss it's 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 um it's being submerged in life a little bit it's being silly and staying young there's something about like being you know um it's making it fun it's like creating joy out of thin air in this within this realm that we all live in of like this food this thing that we can't get around we can't avoid it's like we might as well embrace and find and cultivate love and joy in all the process that we engage with it and um i guess you know that's that's what i'm doing and it's a chance to like teach my kids to to have fun in the kitchen because cooking like you mentioned the, a good place to start is to cook your food it's so intimidating for people like a lot of my clients at the gym we talk about food Granted, they're they're really busy. There's only so much time, 
-hmm. but it's so intimidating and overwhelming to them the idea of like adding that task to their lifestyle and i'm like i love teaching my kid um you know how to how to cook how to like be in there and anything you could do to make it fun or silly or joyful is probably really helpful because one day you know you release the area the arrow like they're out in the world and you've set your parameters as much as you can Mm -hmm. but then you got to hope that like they fly in a reasonable direction and (laughs) that's a good analogy and and it might be something like that that resonates with them where it's like a childhood rem- memory of it being fun to make sourdough or to be a part of it. And it might be the difference of them, you know, doing, taking that extra 20 minutes of their, their day to make themselves food as opposed to maybe rely on the restaurant industry, which doesn't wake up with the same goals. They're not valuing mm-hmm. their health the way they are. So their decisions aren't aimed in the same direction. So, uh, you know, anything you could do to get together. One day we had recently, and I kind of botched this. I haven't really got good at the pizza yet, the pizza dough with the sourdough, but we had guests coming over and there were kids involved, um, anywhere from like one to like seven. And um, I gave everybody, it was like pizza night, but I gave Mm -hmm. everybody a ball of sourdough pizza dough instead. And we just had it all around the island. Everybody had a spot and we had all the ingredients in the middle. And it was pretty sloppy. It was messy, but it was like, we're creating like a memory as opposed to like ordering pizza and it just being magically appearing at the front door with, you know, the doorbell. It's like you have a kid who's getting uh, their fingers sticky. They're getting in it. It's messy. They're making a mess. And you're telling them like, it's okay to make a mess. And that might be the difference that that fun might be Mm. the difference of them taking that skill set and and letting that skill set grow and help nourish their them and their family one day later when they realize like they could be a they could be a part of it absolutely and you know even earlier when you said you know that even though you're the one making it even though you know so, so the example you just gave is a brilliant example of getting everybody involved but even if you're just making the bread i think it's important for everybody to understand too that it's Yes, you might be making the bread, but their experience with that bread is more than just eating it. Now, them, them hearing you sing that song or watching you feed something or smelling it when it comes out of the, all of those aspects of it are connecting them to their food in ways that they would have never been connected, even if they're not physically in the kitchen, although in the kitchen is ideal, but even if not physically in the kitchen, they would have gotten none of those experiences by buying that loaf of bread from the store. Those are incredibly important. Um, And just to know that food is not this mysterious thing that just appears, just, you know, knowing that their father, you know, father or husband or whoever, white, whatever it is, is actually making that food brings it home a little bit, connects us in in, in a way that's powerful. One of the things I also, whether, um, you know, whether it's bread or whether it's something else, um, the, the thing for me years ago was cheese. I, cheese was always this mysterious thing for me that like, oh my gosh, you, you could never make cheese. Like cheese is just something that you always have to buy. Absolutely not. I mean, we make cheese on a regular basis now. But another um, thing I think was important for, for my family is we are very, you know, we get a lot of our nutrition from animal sources. Um, and 
if you are somebody who does get your nutrition from animal sources, there's obviously ways of doing it that are more ethical and sustainable than others. And one of, I feel right now, especially in today's world, one of the places that we really need to reconnect with our food at a visceral level is from our animal sources. If you're, if you're eating animals in your house. Um, and one thing that's missing from our house, from our kitchens today are, bones and feathers and hair and blood. And I know, again, people are like, oh my gosh, what are we talking about? Here we are. We are so disconnected from how our animals are being treated and, and how they get turned into everything from hamburgers to chicken breast that we have to get our source of information from somewhere else because we're one or two or three generations away from any of those sorts of things. And we have always, and I pride myself on this, we've always brought animals into our house butchered completely from scratch uh, at home. I mean, we do do a lot of hunting as well, but even the other animals, we bring in a half a pig and lay it on the counter and we go through the entire thing. And sometimes my entire family's involved and sometimes they're sitting in the t in watching TV in the other room, but they saw, you know, there's no question about where that pork chop came from. You know, they, they know that that animal was once walking around because there was a foot hanging off the other side of it as, as I was cutting it up. And we now are, for some reason, unfortunately, are celebrating that disconnect, right? We, we oh, don't, uh, how many times have I sat at a table and somebody's like, don't tell me anything. I don't want to think about this animal. I just want to eat it. That's the okay. exact wrong way of going about it. It's, hey, let's celebrate this animal. Let's talk about this animal. If we're not talking about how that animal was raised or, 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 or the farmer or the abattoir, or the butcher or whatever, then, then something is missing. And it's that disconnect that has allowed for the mistreatment of animals in our food system. You know, it happened uh, behind our backs, but on our watch. So one of the things that I would really, really, really love to suggest is for anybody that does include animals in their diets in their home, do whatever you can to remove links from that food chain. If you're getting just chicken breast, bring a whole chicken in. Let, let your kids see that there's a form of an animal, you know, there at, at one point, or, or go to the farm where the, you know, where, where the animals are raised or, or whatever it happens to be. That connection or reconnection is crucial to us getting back to a place where we're eating in not only a nourishing, but ethical and sustainable way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, I mean, I'll talk about a recent experience. I know I'm watching the clock. I know you're, you have to go soon. Um, we eat a lot of meat in my house and I find it's just the thing that makes us feel the best mm -hmm. in general. And um I have struggled with the idea of like the factory farming, I guess, model of eating. And we live in a place where there's woods and for years, like I remember getting the property here, moving in and we live, I don't, well, don't want to say where I live, um, but people hunted in the area. And I, I grew up in a suburb where it was like, I never knew, like, I didn't even know people still did that. Like that's mm -hmm. how this, and I grew up in the, right in between Baltimore and DC. And um, like, it was foreign to me. And then after uh, the last several years of diving deeper into nutrition and health, I, it started to dawn on me that like, oh, that is the most ethical way to consume mm -hmm. meat. And it was hard for me. It wasn't hard. It was just like an interesting paradigm shift in my mind, uh, how to look at animal foods and about four years ago I bought a bow and I started practicing target shooting and I was not good at that <laughs> and then three years ago I 
I spent a season practicing target shooting and I got a little bit better. Um, and then last year I went out in the woods and I, I saw what I could do. We have tons of white-tailed deer and I felt compelled. And part of this was also like the pandemic, the desire to build connection. Part of it was fear of like the fear around food scarcity. Mm -hmm. And I saw places where I ordered meat online from that were like really having their inventory challenged, to say the least, where like there were some sites where you go on and like 90% of it was gone mm -hmm. and it, it, re it fixed. But there was a little while where it was really scary. So like I bought another freezer um, and I feel like I, like I have personal issues i guess it's you know it's my insecurities but like when that freezer gets to a certain point i feel like a very urgent primal innate mm -hmm. desire to fill that freezer so last year i spent a bunch of time in the woods trying to hunt i released one arrow and pretty sure i missed <laughs> but i wasn't 100 percent sure it was one of the worst days of my life mm -hmm. searching the woods for an animal that i still don't know if i ever connected with it was a real learning experience. Um, so in some ways, the, the season was a success because I learned a lot, but mostly I learned how bad at hunting I was. And then this year, um, I really, I was back to the drawing board on YouTube, learning, learning, learning. And um, I went out and maybe about my 15th sit in the woods, everything happened like textbook. And mm. I'm hunting from the ground on my property on land that I care for, that I love. I've I fucking worship this land. Like this, my backwoods has become like a sanctuary for me. It's a, a place of meditation. Um, and I connected with like a fairly uh, young buck. And it was like life before that moment and life after that mm. moment. Like I walked in the woods that day, one person, and I walked out a different person. The walk, and, and it was the most ethical shot you could have. Uh, the deer went about 40 yards. It was a matter of seconds before it took its last breath. Um, the walk from when I released the arrow to finding it was indescribable. I mean, I'll try to put words to it now. I haven't really talked. I haven't talked in public about this yet. Um, it was a collection. It was unfamiliar. It was a collection of feelings that mm. aren't typically paired together. Like there was fear. Hmm. There's like fear. And there's like gratitude, but simultaneously, which is a very unfamiliar experience. Like, and that minute or two where I'm walking to find it, it was like I was walking through a plasma of the environment. Like if everything was so heightened and so surreal, it, it was like a psychedelic experience. I felt like hmm. I felt like I was tripping. Hmm. It was so strange. And my heart's going crazy. My emotions are going crazy. I'm sure I have all kinds of stress hormones. There's this like primal um, feeling of like I could feed my family and like what that did for my like self-confidence and self-worth it was it's it's indescribable and I know it's not for everybody and some people might be getting grossed out by this but it was like the it was a spiritual experience and then 
because I, I was on U University of YouTube for a couple of years preparing, I field dressed it myself. I didn't throw it in a trunk and drive it to a, a processor. I did it myself. My family helped. I made mistakes. They were there supporting me. They knew how hard I worked for it. Mm -hmm. It was like very meaningful that they were there for me. And we got through it together. And, um, and then like when it's on the table and we're eating it, it's, man, it's so special. Like it blows the doors out of eating a carrot that you grew from seed. <laughs> like it take that and like, you know, cube it or whatever. Square. <laughs> and it's like, like the, the intensity of the experience and what mm -hmm. it does for the life experience is so beautiful. And you're right. Like it's, it's getting lost. Like people, like when I talked to my mother at first, she was like, you know, this woman loves me. But when I told her, I started hunting. She was like, I can't, I can't hear it. Just like you said, throw your hands up. Like, I don't want to hear it. I'm like, mom, you eat meat like every day. I don't want to hear it. Can't handle it. And it's like that disconnection. And mm -hmm. I feel like the message you're giving out there is it's like inspiring people to just build connection. It doesn't have to be getting in the woods and hunting. Obviously it could be, you know, putting carrots in a jar of salt water in your pantry. But, um, there's something there for everybody. And I, I'm honored to be a conduit for your message. I believe in it and I'm grateful for it. And I love being a part of that world. And in, in my world, in like the mindfulness world where we talk about meditation and yoga, it's often at ends. Like people use the mindfulness approach for the plant kingdom but they don't for some reason. It's almost like using that in the animal, animal kingdom is like frowned upon. Mm -hmm. It's weird. So I would love to play a role in opening people's uh, perspectives and opening their mind and seeing all the many beautiful ways that you could take this idea of paying more attention, cultivating connection with yourself and all aspects in your life to these other things that, you know, because of the way culture and society has driven us now, We've just grown apart. Absolutely. You know, let me say two quick things. Because I know I have to go soon, but you did such a beautiful job of relaying that experience. First of all, thank you. Um, it, it, so, it so reminded me as you were talking of, 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 of when I shot my first deer. It, you, you nailed it. And all the important parts uh, you, you hit on. It, first off, you compared it to a carrot, and that's a good comparison. But I would also for people listening, compare it to throwing a T-bone steak that you bought at Acme onto the table. I mean, what you just described, and then the experience of going to the Acme, picking up a T-bone steak and cooking it. I don't care what kind of Marsala sauce you put on top of mushrooms. <laughs> they're two completely different experiences. One is drenched in emotion. One is drenched in connection. One is drenched in, in, in all of that at the same time. And I do fully believe that that being nourished and uh, fully nourished is more than just getting the protein from that steak. It's it's, it's all that emotion that it, it, you know that we share with for millions of years worth of of that kind of, of visceral connection. The second thing is that for those of you who were listening to that and were as drawn in as I was with that with that um, the story and thinking, yeah, I'd love I would love to figure out a way to do that myself, but um, you know, you either think it's inaccessible or you think that you're going to have to now hunt for the rest of your life and dive off the deep end and never go buy meat again. Uh, let me say two things. One is there, I don't know of another country in the world where hunting is as accessible as it is here. 
in most other places, especially in Europe, um, even though you can hunt, it's really restricted to a socioeconomic class where you have to have access to land. You have to have access to a lot of different things that comes with money and property. You don't need that here. I mean, hunting here literally cross cuts all socioeconomic status. Um, second, that, you know, I hunting, fishing, trapping, foraging, all of those things have been a part of my life uh, since I could walk. I was very fortunate to have a father that, that was able to teach me that. And, I, and I'm very fortunate now to be able to pass that on, on to my kids. And I, and I literally have built a career around that being a part of my life. But you don't have to do it every day, every season, every year to have that sort of a connection or an impact. I mean, if you go hunting once and have an experience like that, you are transformed. If you go fishing once a year, you go foraging once a season and just go out and collect acorns with your kids or something like that, you can get those connections in a very, very powerful way. You don't have to go all of a sudden from being a consumer at uh, Costco and BJ's to being a full-blown hunter-gatherer that lives in the mountains of Montana. I mean, there is a real in-between and it's in that in-between space that we really have to figure out how to live, right? And but that kind of it's worth it. It's so worth it. If this, if that story made that that kind of an impact on you, there are people that can show you. There are organizations that can show you how to go out and, and do this. YouTube University is a great one as well. Um, and one of the things that we just started doing here too is, you know, hunt, ethically hunting is incredibly important. Ethically butchering and cooking is equally as important. And that's one place that even, even in a lot of families that I know that the, the, um, uh, they're still generation after generation hunting, what they do with that animal and how they treat it after death has, has transformed. Part of it's because we're in busy lives today and all this, but I know so many waterfowl hunters that go out and literally just take the breasts off the ducks and the geese because they don't have time to clean them properly. Or there's not somebody that cleans them nearby. Or there's deer hunters that'll just take the loins out of the back and maybe cut out a few steaks. Or most people bring it to a processor and get back what you see in the grocery store, which is reflective of the same kind of cuts of meat. And the reality is, even at that level, when you go to the butcher, pay for it, and it comes back, you're literally talking about almost 50% of that animal coming back to you that you put in your grocery store by weight, and the other half gets thrown, thrown away or, or, or something else is done with it. So what we just started doing here, and we have our first one, I think in January, um, we're, we're doing classes on how to field dress and cook all the different parts of the animal, because not only is that an incredibly ethical and, and sustainable way of going about it, but it is a great way to get the most high quality nutrition out of that animal as possible. Well, wow, that's great. I look forward to learning more about that. I'm watching the clock. I know we're ticking down. If people want, first of all, thank you again, uh, Bill, for taking this time and and just speak with me. It's been great. It's it's a real honor. Um, if people want to learn more, where where do they go? We, you know, my family sort of has two entities here. We have um, we have a nonprofit called the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is uh, the conduit for all of our research and outreach and educational efforts. Um, and you can find out more about that at my website at eatlikeahuman.com. Um, and you can follow me on social media at, at Dr. Bill Schindler, at Dr. Bill Schindler. 
the our entity that is uh, the restaurant more the modern stone age kitchen here in chestertown maryland uh, you can follow us at at Modern Stone Age Kitchen on social media, and our website is modernstoneagekitchen.com. If anybody's in the area, we'd love to see you in person, either for a class or for a meal. Uh, we're located in Chestertown, Maryland, and we're not that far. We're only about an hour and a half from BC and Baltimore and Philadelphia and a few hours from uh, New York City. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And for the listeners out there, I want to thank you again. Always grateful for you guys tuning in and listening. Hopefully you got some value out of this and Hey, if you know somebody you think would appreciate it, please send it their way too. I hope everybody out there has a terrific day. Thanks again for tuning in the episode. Always grateful for the audience to tune in. I hope you got some value out of it. I know I did. It was really great to speak with Bill Schindler. I saw him recently at his establishment and had a great time. Learned a ton. Looking forward to get back there. If you are in the area, I do recommend you checking it out or go to their website modern stone age kitchen and you can learn a lot more i think they have virtual classes too that you could take if you want to learn from bill and his team and you can't make it uh, on location there are other outlets too and if you are interested in his book i highly recommend check it out we'll post a link to it in the show notes right now it's been basically on our coffee table in my house for the majority of the year um, it's like an ongoing resource that has cool recipes that i'll kind of keep coming back to so that's a wrap. If you're enjoying it, uh, please let your podcast player know with a review. I'd be very grateful for all that. Um, appreciate all the support out there for the mindful movement and look forward to another one soon.